help with the music this morning. James chapter number 1, James chapter number 1. This book is written in the context, historical context, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So James obviously had a very great burden for his own people, for the Jewish people. Uh, We see a distinctly Jewish flavor even in the way James would approach the Old Testament and even at times would reflect the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And we are blessed to be partakers of this truth as God has preserved His Word faithfully, His inspired, infallible, inerrant Word, and preserved faithfully for us today. These truths, which are so relevant right now in the 21st century as they were in the first century, in one of the earliest books of the New Testament uh, that was written. And in James 1, we have been working through this chapter, and we've seen that we can, with God's help, count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. We can have victory over temptation. And then as we have come down to verses 19 through 27, we have been working through this passage and seeing how we are to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And this word here in verse 19, let every man be swift to hear, has to do with hearing, receiving, being attentive to the word of God. We then looked at being slow to speak, not mishandling the word of God making sure that as a church we are not endorsing anyone who is not faithful to the Word of God and to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that we as believers are to be careful in how we interpret, how we handle the Word of God. And then last week we spent some time on slow to wrath, that phrase in verse 19, slow to wrath, and how that is speaking to our attitude toward the Word of God, that we are not to have a deep-seated resentment toward the word of God that when God speaks to us through his word we are to receive his word we are to humbly and submit to God's word when conviction comes we're not to become calloused and apathetic toward that conviction we're not to become wrathful toward God with a deep-seated resentment with a boiling anger toward what God points out in our life when he convicts us when he reproves us when he rebukes us no we are to receive the word of God with a humble and a contrite spirit we are to be slow to wrath for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God when we are resistant to the word of God at work in our lives then God is not able to produce within us the righteousness that he so desires to produce within us. We are resisting God's work in making us more Christ-like. The wrath of man, this resistance to the word of God, it does not produce the righteousness of God within us. No, we must yield ourselves, submit ourselves, and humbly be teachable with a broken and a contrite spirit receive the word of God and then to live it out and then we came to verse 21 and we see what gets in the way this filthiness this superfluity of naughtiness we used in a general illustration the idea of weeds weeds that get into our lives as believers that have a way of choking out the word of God that have a way of preventing the light of God's word from dealing with those besetting sins and dealing with those areas of our life 
that need to be dealt with, that need to be submitted, that need to be changed by the word of God. We're to lay apart that filthiness, that word filthiness having to do with taking off dirty clothes. There are times where we get dirty with this world and we have to take off those dirty clothes, put them aside. We have to get rid of those and it's part of the putting on of the new man and putting off the old man. And it's part of what 1 John 1, 9 talks about in how we are to confess our sins and we're to forsake our sins, knowing that God is just and will forgive us of our sins. Becoming in our sanctification process what we already are positionally in Christ, walking worthy of the calling wherewith we are called. Superfluity of naughtiness has to do with an overflow an overflow of wickedness, an excess of evil. Our lives, if we're not careful, we can get caught up in this world and allow some of the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life to create a superfluity of naughtiness in our lives. And we have to cleanse ourselves of those so that our, our, our lives are impacted by the word of God, so that we are receiving with meekness, with humility, the engrafted words so that the word of God can be implanted in us. As genuine believers, we are saved, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. As we heard the word of God, as we heard the gospel, we responded in repentance and faith. And so the word of God, in that sense, is engrafted or implanted in us. But now as we are growing in this Christ-likeness, as we are dealing with the filthiness of this world, as we're dealing with the superfluity of naughtiness that so often gets in the way that we were, were once engaged in, in our old life as an unsaved person, there was filthiness and there was superfluity of naughtiness and we didn't know how to get rid of it. We lived in guilt. We lived in all of the consequences of that sin and there was no victory because we were unsaved. But now as a saved individual... Going through this process of sanctification is we're putting off the old man and getting rid of this naughtiness, this excess of evil and wickedness in our life as we are becoming more and more like Christ. In order to do that, we must receive with meekness, with humility, the engrafted word that has been implanted within us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1 and verse 16. And now we are to allow the word of God to dwell in us richly. The word of God saved our souls, but the gospel doesn't stop there at saving us. Now the gospel is also effective in sanctifying us. So why live like the old man in the filthiness and the superfluity of naughtiness? No, our lives should be looking more and more like Christ. And that's by receiving his word handling the word of God correctly and having the right attitude toward the word of God, continually letting the word of God deal with our life and change us so that we are doers of the word, verse 22, and not hearers only so that now as we know, we be, we are becoming, the word of God is so much a part of our life. It has become a part of who we are. It has formed conviction in our life. It has formed character in our life. It has formed spiritual substance. It is producing spiritual maturity. So now we are just naturally, as a 
spiritually growing and maturing believer, we are now living out the word. So that it's not just having the nomenclature, the terminology, having all the, the Jesus talk, knowing all the right things to say, as so many of us who have grown up in church are really good at. We have all the right things to say, but James is saying it's got to go much more beyond that. It's got to be so much a part of your life that you not just know, but you be, the Word of God has formed conviction, it's formed Christian character, it's formed integrity in your life so that now you are living out what the Word of God is teaching and has implanted in your heart, in your life. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Don't be self-deceived regarding this receiving of the Word and living it out. James does not want us to be hypocritical, calloused, shallow, superficial believers. He wants us to be doers of the word, to live it out in our daily lives. Verse 23, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. So we see here that word glass that word glass speaks of really a shiny metal that would function like a mirror. We think of glass in the form of a mirror, and we use that regularly. Now we even have on our phones, we have cameras that we can reverse so that now we even have the ability to take our camera, our phone on our camera, our camera on our phone, and we hold it up and we can actually look like a mirror in our bathroom or in the car. You've done this before, right? You've been driving down the road and flip down the mirror and you're trying to check and see what's going on. There's some people that I've seen, I've looked in my rearview mirror and there's a lady back there putting her makeup on at the stoplight using the rearview mirror or the mirror that comes down from the, the sunshade there. We see that, we, we are very accustomed to mirrors, to having a reverse image so that we can see ourselves and fix whatever is wrong. And the illustration is very simple, yet it's very profound. He says, if any man or if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man, a person, beholding his natural face in a glass. So this mirror, this in Bible times, which would have been probably a shiny piece of metal that was reflective, it reveals the natural face, verse 23 says. The natural face. The natural face literally means the face of his birth. So let's think about this for a minute. The word of God, like a mirror, reveals what the natural, unsaved man looks like that we are not to be like anymore. We are to be looking, receiving, beholding. The word looketh in verse 25 has to do with, or verse 24 as well, beholdeth has to do with looking intensely, with intensity. In a, in a sense, it has to do with stooping down. In, if you've ever lost a contact or... Uh, one of those little small screws from your glasses that are almost impossible to find on the floor, and you get down and you're staring intently. 
getting a flashlight out. That's the idea of looketh, beholdeth. As we look at ourselves revealed by the word of God, we see the old man, we see the natural man. We see the filthiness, the superfluity of naughtiness. The word of God reveals that to us. And look what James says. If any be a hearer and not a doer, and he be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding, looking intently, seeing the natural face, the face of his birth, the old man, what we used to be before we got saved. Unable to have victory over the filthiness and the superfluity of naughtiness. We see that, and then we go on, and we don't deal with that. We don't deal with that sin. We don't put off that filthiness. We don't get rid of that superfluity of naughtiness, that excess of evil in our lives. What does he say? He says we are self-deceived. He beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. It has to do with verse 22, deceiving your own selves. How ridiculous to see the sin, to see the natural man, to see what we used to be, and to continue to live in that, to continue to allow that to affect our lives, to allow the sinful patterns of thought, the wickedness of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, knowing that the word of God is revealing that, showing us that, and to continue to go on without dealing with that, we are self-deceived. For an unsaved person so self-deceived that they are content to live in their sin and make excuses for it and try to produce their own righteousness through their own so-called good works which we understand are but filthy rags, no matter how moralistic they might be. For a saved person, it's a clear, obvious application that as we are exposed to the Word of God, as we are attentive to the Word of God, as we receive the Word of God, as we hear the Word of God, and the Word of God exposes sin in our lives, we are to deal with that. We're to confess that. We're to forsake that. It may mean going to someone and asking for forgiveness. It may mean bringing some sort of accountability into our life that we can then help share one another's burdens and iron sharpen iron and provoking one another to love and to good works. People who are out of church and not in the word of God, what are they ever, when, how are they ever getting exposed to the word of God. God intends for the word of God to be preached faithfully and to be exhorted faithfully in his body, the local church. Doesn't mean that we can't have personal devotions. That, that doesn't mean that we can't have a, a good, well-established, sound preaching or teaching individual that we might follow online somewhere through social media, through YouTube or something. It doesn't mean that we can't have all alternative or outside resources to supplement and to help us in our Christian walk. But God intends for God's people to be in his church under the preaching and teaching of God's word and to be exhorting one another, provoking one another to love and to good works. 
and singing to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making million our hearts to the Lord, and in doing so, we're speaking to ourselves. We're edifying one another. So the preaching and teaching of God's word includes very much the faithful attendance to God's house, to the church. But it also involves our personal devotional life. I did this study years ago with a Bible class that I was teaching. I may have mentioned it here before, but we sat down and we broke down the number of hours that we spend in hearing and receiving the word of God. And we talked about church attendance and 15 minutes a day, at least six days a week. And I broke it all down. We did the math up on the board. We did the calculations. And then we put the percentage up on the board. And it was something in the neighborhood of 5 or 6% of our time. And that's even if we go faithfully to church and even if we just spend only 15 minutes a day. And when I turned after I wrote that on the board and I turned and looked at the class, there was this look of shock on the kids' faces. Wow, that little? Only 5 or 6% of our whole week is spent? And we think about how much we fill our lives with entertainment, with all the distractions of the world, and we fill ourselves with so much information and data, and there's good in that. It's not that it's all wrong, but how often we have a a, a Bible desert in our personal lives. And even if we bring ourselves into dutiful exposure to the Word of God, but we're just a hearer, And we're not literally letting the word of God change us from within so that we're not a beer, then it's no wonder we're not a doer. We've got so much of the world's thinking that we act like the world. We have so much of the world's philosophy, we practice what the world practices. We have so much of the world's doctrine, no wonder we perform the world's duty. No matter, it's no wonder we have so much principles of the world and values of the world, that that's how we practice, that's how we live out our lives. When James is burdened for the church of God, for the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and for us by the preserved word of God, burdened that we not just be hearers with the Bible trivia and the Bible knowledge and being able to name off all the names and the characters and give all the accounts that we refer to as Bible stories, but that it be real, that it be personal, that we digest the Word of God and it becomes every part of who we are and it forms within us convictions, biblical convictions, and forms moral character, Christ-likeness, holiness, that we can't help but then live out, that we then are doers, Because it's just a part of who we are. It's how we live. It is a lifestyle of godliness. A lifestyle of Christ-likeness. We all have habits. If we stopped right now and thought about what shoe we put on first this morning. Or what sock we put on first this morning. We would probably have to stop and think. Because it's such a habit. We teach good habits of personal hygiene to our children, don't we? Deodorant, showering, brushing their teeth, all these good personal hygiene habits. You go some places around and you wonder if people are even learning those things anymore, right? Some of the things that you come across in our culture today, we're losing sometimes even 
personal common sense hygiene, but we, we teach our children that from the time they're little. They become such habits, they become such a part of our life that it's just natural and normal and we don't even think about it. Is that the way it is with Christian conviction, with biblical convictions, with biblical choices, with right living, with righteousness, that we're such doers, it's such a, a habit. It's, it's not that it's just an automatic and that we don't depend on the Holy Spirit. Of course we do. It's not that we think that we have all this Bible memory and so we just put it into automatic pilot. And some of these newer cars, they have automatic drivers. I don't know how all that works. We, we never get to that place in the Christian life where we just put it in automatic pilot and we just go through life. No, but it's such a habit of our life to consistently and regularly and continually depend upon the Lord and apply his truth that we are living a righteous and godly and holy life. Not perfect, but there is a Christ likeness that is manifested. It's a lifestyle of love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faithfulness. That people see it, that it's obvious and it's not about bragging and highlighting and showing off, but it's just the normal and the natural habit of our life. That's what James is after. That we don't be a forgetful hearer. That we don't behold and look and then forget what manner of man he was. That we don't deceive ourselves. But verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James talks about the honor of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord that comes from being a doer of the word. God wants to honor our life. God wants to bless our life. We think that all that the world has to offer is what really brings happiness what really brings gusto to life, what really makes life worth living. That's a lie. The world has nothing to offer. True joy, true satisfaction comes from knowing, being, and obeying the Word of God. It is a grand thing to be a Christian. It is the best thing I know. It is a grand thing to follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere we go. This is the best life, the Christian life. And we look forward to a better life. <laughs> not the best life now that can sell books on the New York Times bestseller. Not the best life now in the sense of our natural life. But the best life is the Christian life that looks forward to an even better life, the glorified life in the presence of Christ our Savior in heaven. And James is burdened that God's people be doers of the word, they not be forgetful hearers and that they enjoy God's blessing, the satisfaction, the honor of pleasing the Lord with our lives. Now, I can't help but take a minute and talk about this phrase, law of liberty, because this speaks to this idea, this mentality that we can get ourselves caught up in if we're not careful. This phrase, law of liberty, it seems like a paradox, not two medical doctors sharing the same office, but a paradox, a literary device, a literary term that it seems to be a contradiction. Law, liberty, in our culture today, 
no law, no rules, libertarian, do whatever I want to do. Whatever I feel like doing, I do it. Identify myself any way I can or want and do anything I want to do, however I want to do it, and I can fulfill anything that I dream to do. That's not reality. That's not truth. We should have zeal and gusto. We should have determination. We should have motivation. We should have drive that comes from the Lord and being everything that God wants us to be and using everything that God has given us we shouldn't be lazy bums. We shouldn't be just sitting back and eating potato chips and watching whatever is on the latest Netflix or streaming service and binge watching. I saw on a billboard, not a billboard, a bulletin board at college where Chandler and Emily are at, and it said, binge watching is not a skill to put on your resume. <laughs> I thought, that's good advice. But the law of liberty... There is freedom in Christ. It's freedom from sin. Romans 8 and verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. There is freedom in Christ and obedience to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I delivered the Indianapolis Star for years getting up early every morning, putting on that newspaper bag and going out and delivering newspapers. I know nowadays that's a rare thing. You just get up in the morning and turn on your phone, right? But I delivered the Indianapolis Star for years. And right there at the top underneath the title Indianapolis Star was 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I don't know if the Indianapolis Star even cares for the truth of that verse anymore. It's gone so liberal. But the truth remains the same. The truth remains a reality. The Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The keeping of God's laws brings freedom from sin. Sin brings bondage, brings guilt, brings hopelessness, brings despair. Sin is a very cruel taskmaster. Sin's rule is tyrannical. The psalmist said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. As we fail as a culture to allow God and his moral laws to govern us, we descend into moral chaos, confusion, and insanity of all kinds. Crime and lawlessness increase as we reject God and His Word and His absolute truths. Instead, we become subject to sin and to disorder. I believe it was John Adams who said that America will not survive if America is not a moral country because this constitutional democratic republic that we are thankful for, it will not be able to function if the people are not moral, if the people cannot govern themselves by the laws of God then we have to be governed by some tyrannical power. And that tyrannical power will bring the tyranny of sin. And we see areas of our culture that are captive 
to the sins of this world that have brought nothing but guilt and despair and hopelessness and moral chaos and confusion, insanity and disorder. We are increasingly, increasingly bringing tyrannical rule because we don't rule ourselves with spiritual disciplines and self-control by the help of the Holy Spirit and the application of the Word of God. We must be ruled by God, by His Word, who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, he says. That's what we need. We need the freedom of living an obedient life in Christ. This sin of this world, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There is freedom in Christ. That's what James is speaking of in being a doer of the word. And then he comes down in verse 26 and 27 as we come to the end of this chapter. We're going to see three examples, three categorical examples of living out the word of God. Three examples, three categories of living out the word of God. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own hearts, this man's religion is vain. Now this word religion, it literally speaks of ceremonial public worship. The externals of religious practice. Now some churches put a lot of emphasis on making the church gatherings more like performances, concerts, maybe Broadway-type programs or specials, and put less emphasis on personal holiness. But the church is to emphasize personal holiness, not that we should have a disorganized, chaotic church service. Of course not. Let all things be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul describes what a church service should look like, and it shouldn't look like what the Corinthians are doing. He, he draws a contrast and he says, let all things be done decently and in order. So we're to have a, yes, organized and orderly church service. But some churches put way too much emphasis on all the programming and the choreography and it turns into a concert or a performance. Instead of a service that draws our hearts to the Lord and exalts him, it becomes too much about exalting self. He says, that religion, the outward practice of our faith, we can be guilty personally of having all the externals, the external practices, looking a certain way and dressing a certain way and talking a certain way, but our life not be doing obediently, living out faithfully the principles, the commands, and the promises of God's word. And he's saying, look out. He says, one way... One way that we show our religion to be vain is by not bridling our tongue. We can be guilty, personally, of having a lot of outward religious practice, of religiosity. We can even have a customer service Christianity, as I like to call it. 
but not truly living out our lives in service and personal holiness. And he says one area is with our tongues. We show our religion to be in vain because we don't bridle our tongue. We talked about this a little bit with being slow to speak, not saying anything that would be contrary to the word of God, not falling short of what the word of God says, nor going beyond what the word of God says, not violating the word of God. We're not to violate the principles of God's word with our tongue. It's interesting, James really deals with the tongue. He brings it up again here. And then in James chapter number three, we'll deal with it. He says, we show our religion to be in vain. The practice of our faith is in vain if we don't bridle our tongue. Proverbs 13 and verse three, he that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life, but he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 21 and verse 23, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble, from trouble, or from troubles. A hateful, biting, angry tongue betrays our relationship with God. It proves our religion is in vain. A vulgar, perverse, inappropriate tongue betrays our relationship with God. It proves our religion is in vain. A lying, deceitful, and dishonest tongue betrays our relationship with God and proves that our religion is in vain. A boastful, bragging, arrogant tongue. I don't care how many headlines it gets, how many NIL deals it gives you. I don't care how many scholarships it wins, how many prizes and awards it gives you. A boastful, bragging, and arrogant tongue betrays our relationship with God, improves that our religion is in vain. We must bridle our tongue. A second way, a second category that he said proves that our religion is not in vain, that we should be living out the word of God, not just with the control or the bridling of our tongue, but also by serving and giving without expecting anything in return. Look what he says in verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Pure religion and undefiled, unspotted, blameless, practice of our faith and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Orphans and widows are representative of people who cannot give back, especially in Bible times in the first century. An orphan and a widow, they had no ways, no means by which to give back should they be served, should they be given help, should they be provided for. They would, with such little that they had, they would have no way of ever returning the favor, so to speak. Do we not live in a culture that if I scratch your back, you scratch mine? We even live increasingly in a dog-eat-dog kind of world, right? Climbing over each other. But he's giving a category. Orphans and widows represent people who cannot give back. We help them without expecting anything in return. And that's the overall principle. That our serving and our giving are not to be for selfish gain, for personal reward, for getting something in return. You've met people like that. I don't know, maybe we call them Indian givers or whatever kind of givers. And they, they, they always let you know 
If you've done something, or if they, excuse me, if they've done something for, for you, then they constantly remind you of what they did for you. And then they're constantly, what, kind of hinting, <clears throat> can I have a little bit back in return? Remember what I did? Remember how I gave? Remember how? Is that the attitude that we should have? Even in the Sermon on the Mount, there's the talk about a right hand not knowing what our left hand is doing. The idea, this principle of serving and giving without expecting anything in return. We show how real and vibrant our relationship with God is when we serve others humbly and sacrificially. Not with manipulation and exploitation, which is so characteristic of the world today. How often do we see relationships based on selfishness, greed, power, sensuality? What's in the headlines right now is the Sam Bankman Freed or whatever his name is. And that cryptocurrency and the big ripoff and scandal that was. We've heard of Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes. All ways to take advantage of people. Relationships of the world are so often just based on selfish, greed, power, sensuality. And in the family, what does it produce when we live that way? In the family, in the home, it produces fractured homes, divorce, abuse, or worse. What about in the workplace? It creates tension, strikes, fraud, embezzlement. On and on it goes. We talked about already, I mentioned the Ponzi schemes and the pyramid schemes. The golden balloons so that the CEO and the CFO can make sure they get their golden parachute, I should say, while the company goes down due to their fraud and their exploitation of the, the resources and not treating the employees right or whatever the case may be. What about in society? This attitude in society results in crime and disorder. In politics, do we not see politics? It's all about what I did for you. Kick back to me. We see it. It's in the headlines. Depending on what your last name is and what office you hold and how much money you can then gain under the table and pay others in the family. Right? It goes on and on. And it's not just on the liberal democratic side. It's on the conservative side as well. When we see womanizing and exploitation and fraudulent practices, all for personal gain, this is exactly what James is saying. If you practice, if you live that way, but you call yourself a Christian, you claim the name of Christ, but you live in selfish greed and in corruption and covetousness and immorality, he says, your religion is in vain. The practice of your faith betrays your relationship with God. So we see orphans and widows. We think of poverty. We think of social justice, right? That's really not what James is necessarily advocating, though there are times that we help those. Oftentimes it comes through personal relationships. Has the government won the war on poverty? I think they've only made it worse. I mean, look at inflation. Isn't inflation, the high inflation, isn't that just another tax on the poor? Is the lottery, I mean, really, when the lottery came to Indiana, I was just a little kid, and I remember the headlines. The lottery was going to save education. Our roads were going to be streets of gold, and uh, we were going to have 
the best schools in all of the land, and on and on. Has the lottery brought health, wealth, and prosperity? Solved all our education, financial problems, paved all our roads? No. I mean, government, they've not won the war on poverty. Handouts and programs with no relationships, no care for the personal needs of an individual, those don't solve the root causes. What does he say in verse 27? To visit, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Visit has to do with a relationship, getting involved in people's lives, showing genuine care and compassion. It's speaking of a personal touch. Government and other organizations can throw lots of money on poverty-reducing programs, but what often is missing is the personal relationships, the compassion, and many, many times, too often, what's missing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which ultimately changes lives from within, which even surveys and research has shown among programs in prisons and jails that the rates of recidivism are greatly reduced, they're greatly improved, through faith-based programs that preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone and victory over sin through the power of Jesus Christ. Research has proven it and shown it. So he's dealing with the fact that we have to get involved in people's lives. We have to show compassion. We have to sacrifice. We have to serve. We have to give, even if it means nothing in return. Service and ministry often require us to get our hands dirty, so to speak, in people's lives. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it brings rejection, criticism. It almost always brings some amount of inconvenience and sacrifice. But it is what God has called us to do. If we're not doing it that way, then our religion is in vain. It betrays our relationship with God. And we're just like the world. And James is dealing with where the rubber meets the road, isn't he? And it hurts. It hurts because we don't bridle our tongue like we should. We don't serve and give like we should. And yet James is not done. In the last few minutes, look at the end of verse 27. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. We're to bridle our tongue. We're to give and to serve without expecting anything in return. And the third category he brings up is keeping oneself unspotted from the, world, from the world. That's how we show that our religion is not in vain. When we are soiled and stained by the world, we betray our relationship with God. And no matter how we say we practice our faith, it is in vain. Because we're soiled and we're stained by the word of God. We must have an uncompromising moral and spiritual stand upon the infallible, inerrant, unchanging truths of the Word of God. And the religion, the way we practice our faith is to be from the outflow, the overflow, and the reflection of our deep, abiding, intimate, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ as we have been transformed by the Word of God that we have received, that we have then allowed to be and to become a part of who we are and what we are and our convictions and our, our standards and our, our moral character and our integrity so that we live out this 
personal holiness in this separation from the world. 1 Peter 1 and verse 19 uses this same word unspotted to speak of without spot, to be blameless, to be without moral defect. I don't know about you, but I have certain pants and shirts that I just cannot keep clean. Kelly warned me last week, I had a white shirt on. She said, make sure you take that white shirt off before you eat. Sure enough, I have a little spot on my white shirt. I think it came out, though. I checked it this morning when I got out of the dryer. But my khaki pants are ruined for the umpteenth time. Big old black, what looks like ink spots. I even tried WD-40. Didn't work. I just cannot. There are certain pants and shirts I just can't keep clean. It seems like they're always getting soiled, stained, spotted. But we are. Amen. Amen. We seem, I mean, we, we get upset. That's another pair of pants I got to buy, another shirt I got to buy, another this or that I got to replace. We, we, we talk about that in, in physical terms and monetary terms, materialistic terms, but we are so content to have stains and soiled garments in our spiritual lives, aren't we? To our shame, to my shame, we'll tolerate soiled spills, stains on our spiritual garments. We walk so close. I've made the mistake of grilling with my white shirt on and coming coming back in the house and hitting myself in the head because I've got little charcoal or oil stains all over my shirt. It's ruined. But we do that in our spiritual lives. We walk right up close to the world's grill And we let all the spatterings and the smatterings and the soils and the stains of the world get on our life. And James says, our our religion is in vain. The practice of our faith is in vain. We betray our relationship with God. When we say all these things about being a Christian and loving the Lord, but we don't bridle our tongue. We don't serve, we don't give, and if we do, we expect something in return. We expect a pat on the back, and not that there's anything wrong with praising, and we need, need to praise and encourage one another. We sometimes live as if, well, I'm not going to keep serving unless somebody makes sure I'm noticed. We don't serve, and we don't give with the right attitude, the right spirit. We expect something in return. We're not giving truly, sacrificially, humbly, and compassionately like we should, and we're letting ourselves get stained and soiled. By the world. James warns us we need to be not just hearers of the word, but to be doers, even down to the very lifestyle, habits, character, and convictions of our life, that we might live them out to the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, this is a convicting passage. James is so burdened. These Jews in the first century, they have traveled far, they've been spread abroad. They have been persecuted in many cases for their faith, but James still is desiring their holiness. And Lord, you've preserved your inspired word for us today that we might make these same truths real in our lives to not just be hearers, but to be doers of the word in every area, not being spotted and stained by the world, having a giving and a sacrificial life not expecting anything in return, and bridling our tongue, showing the reality of a true, intimate, deep, personal relationship with you that is formed within us, character, convictions, and integrity. 
that brings glory to you. Lord, we pray that you do your work in our hearts, even as we sing this final song, we pray in Jesus' name.